Good morning, North Wake. So very good to be with you guys this morning. Some of you may know that uh, Shelly and I are entering a new phase of our home, the empty nest phase. Uh, our first son, Hunter, enlisted into the Air Force and left for basic training at the beginning of March of this year. And uh, so it's very different around our house. And it's interesting, when I pe- tell people that we're entering this uh, empty nest phase, they tell my wife that she looks too young to have a son that old, but they never tell me anything close to that. Uh, but yes, uh, as Daniel said, our son is, is grown and has uh, enlisted into the Air Force. And so he left it, like I said, beginning of March. And it's interesting, when your first child goes off, you, you want to talk to them. You want to see how things are going, get updates. Uh, and when they're in college, you get to do that. But when they join the military, they shut down communication. Zero communication. We had to, to go back to that old discipline of letter writing with a pen and paper. We would write letters every day. Shelly uh, would write letters and Brooklyn would write letters. And we'd send those in the mail. And it was weeks and weeks till we finally got a letter response. And so that was a primary means of communication. So you go from seeing your son every day for 19 years to not really getting to communicate with him at all. And so we finally, at the end of April, we, his graduation was coming up. We got to fly to San Antonio, Texas, and see his graduation at Lackland Air Force Base. And so the first time we get to see him is at something called a coin ceremony. And it's where all of the men and women march out, and they stand in formation. And there's this great ceremony. And they have to stay in formation until one of their family members taps them out, touches them on the shoulder. And so Hunter's down on this big concrete pad with all the other military folks standing in formation. And we're at the top of these, these stadiums. So we could get a, a good eyesight, a good spot to see this whole ceremony take place. But as soon as they say, parents, you can go tap your children out. Even though we're at the top, guess who's first one down? Yes, Shelly Mason. I actually grabbed her iPhone and recorded this encounter, our First reunion with Hunter after uh, eight weeks. (laughs) Notice she's not tapping. Obviously, it was a very emotional reunion for our family. Um, Brooklyn was a little upset that I showed the video today. She, in her words, is an ugly crier. Um, I I think we're all pretty much ugly criers. (laughs) So we get to see our son after eight weeks. And uh, after this, the next thing was his graduation and he could finally go off base for the first time in eight weeks. But he, he has to remain in his uniform. So we jump in the rental car. We, we drive to pick up his friend from the airport, his best friend, Jonathan. And we're driving to uh, the Riverwalk, which is a popular destination in San Antonio, Texas. And as we're driving down this interstate, Hunter looks off to the side. 
And he sees thousands and thousands of people lining the streets. There are people hanging out of hotel rooms with these bright colored flags. And he says, Dad, let's go. Now, my son has been on base under the thumb of a drill sergeant for eight weeks. He gets whatever he wants at this point. So I look for the next exit, and we pull off right into the middle of Fiesta San Antonio. It's a month-long festival that's the biggest festival San Antonio has, and it's patterned after these flower festivals in Mexico. And so when we pull off, there are barricades, streets blocked. Like I said, thousands and thousands of people, vendors set up. You can't go anywhere. And so I'm not from the area. I don't know where to find a place to park. So I see a police officer standing in front of a barricaded road. And I pull up and I say, sir, where can we find a place to park? He politely chuckles and says, sir, you're you're not going to find a place to park down here. A little discouraged. I said, okay, you know, we're just trying to get our son down here. He just graduated uh, Air Force basic training. And he goes, Hold on. Without hesitation, sir, you part right here. (laughs) He moves the barricade. He ushers us to a spot with a big sign that says no parking. (laughs) You park here. Yes. Where else can I get this? I'm going to eat steak later on. Maybe I can get a free dinner. No. But, But we park here. He puts the barricade back. And he walks over to the car. And he tells my son, thank you for your service. We're not a military strong family. This was something that I'd heard about before, but I had never experienced myself. And so we began to walk around this parade, and that was not the only time this happened. Over and over and over again, people would come up to him and say, Thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. Thank you, son, for serving our country. And as I began to watch this happen, I began to compl- uh, contemplate what makes serving such a big deal, specifically with the military. Why did people value service so much? And I want to continue that thought today. What makes serving such a big deal? Why do people value it so highly? And so to do that, I want to look into God's Word and see what He says about what makes serving such a big deal. If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, please turn to Mark chapter 10. We'll primarily be in verses 35 through 45 of Mark 10. And as you turn there, let me pray for our time together. Father, grant us in the next few moments the ability to focus on you and your word without distraction. May your word be our guide as we find our greatest delight in Christ and enjoy, follow his example. May your spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you truly enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we may see our lives and the world the way you do. Amen. So we'll be picking up in verse 35 here in Mark 10. We read that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. 
So right away, we, we see these two disciples and their somewhat ambitious request. Think about it. They are asking Jesus to give them whatever they ask. Seems strange. But it might not seem so strange if you have older kids, okay? Older kids do this. They come up to you and they say, Hey, I've been thinking about something I, I need to ask you, and, and I really want you to say yes. you you gotta, you got to say yes, Dad. I'll give you an example, again, from Hunter. Uh, we're getting close to his 16th birthday, and he comes up to me and says, Dad, I've been thinking. I know what I want for my birthday. And I'm going to tell you what it is, but hey, you, you got to say yes, Dad. You know, I'm, I'm becoming a man. I think it's time I start making my own decisions. And so I figured it out, and uh, I want you to say yes. you got, you got to say yes. Hunter, what is it that you want? Well, Dad, I want a tattoo. But remember, Dad, you said yes. No, I did not. You told me to say yes. Hunter, like a lot of other kids, was trying to precondition my response. Kids do this when they got something they really, really want, but they're not sure if you're going to be able to give it to them or not. And you know what? I think it's something similar to what's going on with James and John here in our passage today. So what is their request? They asked to sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand in his glory. Now, why would they ask for these? Because these are the positions of honor and authority. This, these seats are the seats of greatness. Turn to Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So it wasn't the seats per se that they were after. It was what the seats represented. They represented honor and authority and greatness. And that's what the disciples wanted. So how does Jesus respond? Verse 38. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So James and John, they really don't know what they're asking. And Jesus alludes to two images as he begins to question them further. And the two images that Jesus used are the cup and the baptism. So what is this cup and what is this baptism that Jesus is talking about? If you turn back in your Bibles to Isaiah 51, verse 17, we read, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dredges the bowl, the cup of staggering. And then if you flip forward to Luke chapter 12 and verse 50, we read, I, Jesus, have a baptism to be baptized with. 
And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So the cup and the baptism are images of Jesus' impending sufferings. The two disciples obviously anticipated Jesus' glory. But they failed to comprehend the sufferings that led to it. These two disciples quickly and naively respond to Jesus with a, We are able. They seem overly confident. And I believe that this is probably due to their inability to comprehend exactly the magnitude of the sufferings that Jesus would encounter. And they're blinded by their desires for grandeur. Their desires to be great. But nonetheless... Jesus anticipates their suffering. Now, they would not suffer in exactly the same way that Jesus would. No, for we know that only the Son of Man can bear the full wrath of God the Father as an atoning sacrifice, pleasing to the Lord. But they would suffer for the sake of the gospel. And along with Jesus' prediction, he informs the two disciples that the two seats that they have requested are not his to grant. Now, if you're anything like me, you're wondering at this point, where are the other ten disciples? What are they up to? What do they think about all this? And in verse 41, we get a glimpse into their hearts. Verse 41 reads, And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. So far, the attention has been on James and John, but now we turn to the other ten disciples. And verse 41 informs us that they were indignant. Some of your Bible translations will say that they were angry or they were furious. So the disciples are furious at James and John. And I don't think it's because of this selfish, ambitious request that they have, but rather that James and John had just beat them to the punch. See, they wanted those glory seats for themselves. It's like James and John had called shotgun for the best two seats. You guys remember this in high school, okay? Your friend gets a driver's license, and you don't have your driver's license yet, and you begin to ride to and from school. You don't have to ride the bus anymore. And so the first person that comes out and calls shotgun gets to sit in the front seat, the cool seat, the seat of honor and authority and greatness. And everybody else is ushered into the black abyss of the back seat. This works for a while, but at some point, sometimes somebody's going to get upset. And so I turned 18 before a lot of my friends in my grade, and I had this really, really nice Mercury Grand Marquis. No, it's like a land yacht, but it could carry a lot of people. And so I walk out to the car, and I see my brother Adam and one of my other friends, Jeff Ruye, and they are arguing, and they begin to push and shove one another. I'm like, what is going on here? And I walk over and say, what's up? Find out they were arguing about who called shotgun first. And the rules and regulations in this thing we call shotgun. They were indignant because... They wanted to sit in the place of greatness. They wanted to sit in the seat of honor and glory. And I really believe that this is what's going on with our ten disciples here. They were upset 
that they just didn't get a chance to call shotgun first. So selfish ambition and rivalry is brewing amongst the disciples. And how does Jesus respond to them? We pick up in verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And the great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus takes this opportunity provided him and he teaches his disciples once again. In this soft rebuke, Jesus is actually reminding them of a previous teaching he had just had with them in Mark chapter 9. Turn your Bibles with me back to Mark chapter 9, verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they, the disciples, kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And sat down, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So this is not the first time that Jesus had addressed his disciples' desire for greatness. In Capernaum, he had told them that greatness is found in humility and serving. It's not about being first. It's about being last. On Memorial Day, uh, our family was over at the joiners kind of hanging out. It was last Monday. And the joiner kids found out that I was going to be preaching this Sunday. And so they asked me what the sermon was going to be about. And so I said, wow, what a great opportunity. So I started to share with Brantley and McKinsley, their two-year-old, excuse me, their 11-year-old boys, uh, what the sermon was about. And very quickly, one of them turned to me and said, so your sermon is about being great. Yes. If I can explain it to two 11-year-olds, I've got a good chance this morning. And so I followed up with a question. I said, so where do you find greatness? How do you become great? And without missing a beat, he says, when other people serve me. (laughs) I said, all right, I got to go back to the drawing board, work on the sermon a little bit, polish it up. But you know what? As I think about it, I don't really think that it was my communication skills that needed polishing. It wasn't simply that because... Serving is not an easy thing. It's simple to understand, but it is not easy to live out. See, our our fleshly default is a deep desire to be served. Our cultural programming is that great men and great women have a bunch of people beneath them that serve them. And this young man was doing what, if we're honest, we all do. He was struggling to believe in Jesus' definition of greatness. And we all do. We all struggle to buy in. So here on the road to Jerusalem, Jesus teaches his disciples once again. He reminds them that God's kingdom does not operate like the world's. He says that Gentiles, referring to the non-believing world, they value position and power. Worldly rulers use their positions to, as Jesus puts it, 
lord it over them or exercise authority over them. Notice their position. They are above and everyone else is beneath. It's like an organizational chart. The higher up you go, the greater you are. But Jesus begins to flip that worldly hierarchy upside down with his statement, but it shall not be so among you. Not with my disciples. They and we should live differently. This passage calls the disciples and us today to remember that we do not follow the elementary principles of this world. No. You and I, we are ambassadors of another kingdom. We are aliens and strangers of this world. We are sojourners and we should live and function much differently. This passage is about, if you notice, that it's interesting that Jesus does not rebuke the disciples' desire to be great. He doesn't. He redefines greatness. He tells them that true greatness is found in the service of others. And he even goes further. He says, if you want to be the greatest, if you want to be first, then you must be a slave of all. So according to Jesus, greatness is not found at the top. It's found at the bottom. They and we should not seek to lord over others as though others are beneath us. Instead, we should be servants and slaves. We should take the voluntary low position, not above others, but beneath them. Not only should we take that position, but that is the position of greatness. That is where we find greatness. So enthroned in seats of glory is not where Jesus' disciples find greatness. No, they find greatness as they pour out their lives in sacrificial service to others. Wow. What a counter-cultural thought. So where are you tempted to find greatness? Is it found in places where you are over others, where you are in charge? Where others serve you? Do you find greatness in ruling over others at work or at home? Are you great because you get to tell others what to do all day long? Maybe, maybe you're a teacher and you find greatness in being intellectually superior to others so that you can get them to do the things that you want them to do. Maybe you're a husband and you find greatness in telling your children and your wife what to do and expect them to serve you because you're the head of the household. Maybe you're the boss at work and use that position to get other people to do what you want them to do. And that is what you think makes you great. Now there's nothing inherently wrong with being smart. There's nothing inherently wrong with being and leading a household well. There's nothing inherently wrong with career success. But the question is, where do you find greatness? Do you find it? Being great is when others are serving you or when you are actually serving them. Seriously, let's just take a moment and evaluate our lives. Does the idea of voluntary slavery spark images of grandeur in your mind? Jesus says that it should. 
the greatest of the greats, the first place ribbon goes to the slave of all. If servitude and voluntary slavery do not seem like greatness to you, then this passage is meant to reorient your thinking. Jesus wants to give us a renewed definition of greatness. The disciples needed to hear this more than once. And I believe, North Wake, that we need to be reminded of it and taught it again today as well. So if Jesus' illustration of the Gentile rulers and his command to serve were not enough, he gives them the ultimate example of this himself. He says to them that even he, the Son of Man, did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The one person who deserved to be served, Jesus, came to serve us. God came to serve humans. The Creator came to serve the created. The second person of the Trinity came to serve you and me. This is an unfathomable reality. Let it sink in for a moment. It's an astonishing statement. God came not to be served by man, but to serve man. We read through these things way too fast. So cavalierly. This is astonishing. This should blow our minds and humble us simultaneously. Jesus' service, His came at an ultimate cost. The passage says that He gave His life. His service, His voluntary slavery, His greatness came at the supreme cost. It was death so that He could ransom many. Brothers and sisters, this is the example that Jesus gave His disciples and this is the example that we have before us here today. Disciples of Christ are to model their lives of service after the sacrificial service of the Son of Man. I'll say that again. Disciples of Christ are to model their lives of service after the sacrificial service of the Son of Man. He's our model. He's our motivation. The bumper sticker for this is, Great disciples are great servants. Great disciples are always Great servants. We know that as we read the rest of the New Testament that James and John finally got this lesson. We know this specifically from John in 1 John 3 verse 16. He writes, By this we know love that he, Jesus, laid laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So John got it. He believed that laying down his life was worth it. He knew it because Christ had laid down his life for him. And that is how John and we, all believers, know what love is. So John realized that great disciples are great servants. So back to the question that we began with today. What makes serving such a big deal? I really believe that the reason when we walked around Fiesta San Antonio that afternoon and people kept coming up to Hunter saying, thank you for your service. I really believe that people say that to military folks and not other professions because 
we know that those men and women who serve our country are at some level placing their lives in danger. And we highly value this. We are aware of the potentially life-giving sacrifice that they make. As humans, we are attracted to, we esteem selfless sacrifice. And as we look upon Christ in our passage today, we see the ultimate example of this in the life-giving sacrificial service of Christ. He's the greatest person who's ever lived. And he was our example. He's the definition and epitome of greatness. And we have the opportunity to be great as we follow his example and serve others sacrificially. Okay? That's the gospel. We have sinned. Our sin separates us from God. The wages of those sin is death. And so God sends his son to serve man by dying on a cross for him. So that you and I can have life. What an example. What a model. The epitome of greatness. This is also one of the reasons at North Wake that we do this thing called study, serve, worship. Okay? Last week, Benjamin Quinn led us in a conversation on the study. And today as we focus on serve, we're reminded of the importance and greatness of it. Because service is where we find greatness in God's eyes. Does this truth motivate you? We do not live so that others can serve us. That does not motivate us like the rest of the world. No, we live for the pleasure of God. One day, you and I will stand before God. And as we anticipate that day, we long to hear those words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And as we anticipate those words, we know that those words are heard by servants. Because in this passage today, Jesus tells us that that is true greatness in God's eyes. Voluntary servitude pleases our great God. As I was thinking about the implications that this would have on us as a congregation and uh, serving one another, I came across a story, an anonymous illustration. The story goes that one evening, an old man, while watering the garden, the sheer sacrifice of true service overwhelmed him. There amongst the tomatoes and parsley, he realized that the most of uh, his previous attempts at service were very much like the garden hose that he held in his hand. He was in control, dictating how when and to whom he would serve. With his nifty sprayer, he could even stop the water altogether whenever he felt like it. The flow of Christ's love that he gave to others depended on his mood, the health of his career, and even how much sleep he had gotten the night before. In his words, his was a self-righteous, self-gratifying service. But in contrast, he noticed a soaker hose and a planter across from him. It watered the ground completely indiscriminately. Dozens of holes let the water loose and it had no shutoff switch. Life-giving water oozed out all over the place whether he liked it or not. To serve like a soaker hose, he said, means to pour out Christ's love from every pore of one's being. 
Not concerning oneself with timing, the effect it may have on productivity, or the worthiness of the recipients. So as we begin to think about our own lives and how we will pursue greatness by sacrificially serving others, North Wake, I think we need to be like the soaker hose, serving indiscriminately, serving those that, you know what, they don't really deserve it. Serving when it's even inconvenient. Serving when it seems to be inefficient. And if we're really honest, to serve when we really just want to be served. And in doing so, we imitate Christ and become great in God's eyes. So brothers and sisters, I want us to seize every opportunity we have to be great. I deeply desire that we would hold fast to Jesus' teaching and serve one another out of the joy that is set before us. I want us to be great. And I believe that great disciples are great servants. Now you may think that our service is ending a little early today as I begin to close us. But our response time is not going to take place in this room as it usually does. The praise team is not going to come back up. They're not going to lead us in a song. Okay? Our response is going to take place outside. As Rob mentioned last week, our serve sign-ups are going to take place where we all sign up together. In unity, as one body, whether you're coming up on serving in this coming semester or you don't serve again till January of 2016. As a whole church, we're going to be signing up to serve together. So you notice there's tents outside. In the, in the visitor parking spots. And so after I read our benediction, I want to encourage you to respond to Jesus' call to be great through service. Visit the tents. Prayerfully consider where you will serve, where you will pursue greatness. And take a tangible, practical step towards greatness today by signing up to serve. On the other hand, you may be visiting us today. The serve is primarily for North Wake members. But if you're visiting and you don't even know if Christ has ransomed your life, I will be down front. Some of our elders will be down front. We would love to talk with you about the sacrificial service of Christ and how that can be applied to your life. How you can be ransomed from your sin. So our benediction is going to come from Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 and 14 read, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Go and be great.